0: The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether, they are more desirable than gold yes than much fine gold sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb moreover by them your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward father in heaven we thank you so much for bringing us together here this morning and God we can't ever get tired nor stop thanking you for your word it teaches us so much everything it reproves us and corrects us and warns us and trains us in righteousness and so God we we ask you to help us desire it more each and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, how did you do with your homework last time? Did you bring it back? <laughs> um, it helps sometimes if you get two pages, it helps if you staple them together, just a little FYI. And, um, did you get the kind of the rhythm and the feel for how how you will be, about how long it will take you to do your homework purposefully and carefully? It was Monday, um, last Monday night, and I reminded myself two Mondays ago that I said, yeah, by Monday I start answering the first question, so I did that. and. Um, That's what we want you to do, just pace yourself so that you have time to answer um, with some prayer and with some thought and really digging and asking God what he would like um, you to know about your heart and how you can answer these questions prayerfully. And so how about your time in the Word the last two weeks? How was that? Remember, being in the Word every day, it's the central part of Wellspring, right? So it's time to start. Don't wait until January 1st. Start now if you haven't found your plan and gotten started. And if you have, keep going. Remember, um, in our homework, we had, the homework had us looking, I believe it was seven, it was a whole page full, right? Seven different parts in the Bible where we were looking to see what God says about his word, what the psalmist recognizes about himself, his need and God in those verses. And then we were all over the New Testament finding um, out what the verses in the New Testament say about God's word. So you can see it's pretty central part. But remember also last time I told you It's not about the plan. We always have to be reminding ourselves about that, right? It's not about the plan, but it's about the what? Purpose, right? It's about the purpose behind the plan. The plan, it's just a tool to help get us there. So, the homework that you picked up today, in there, it explains, I think it explains very well the heart behind um, making a Bible reading plan the central part of Wellspring, why we have that. So I'm going to read part of that to you. It says, the primary goal in encouraging participants of Build and Wellspring to be faithful to a Bible reading plan is to discover the God of the Word from one page to the next, all the way from the beginning all the way to the end of the Bible God did not reveal himself only in our personal five favorite books of the Bible but on every single page so to ignore or to neglect God's self-revelation on all the other pages it does something ladies and it's not good It impoverishes us. It actually impoverishes our souls because our souls are nourished by the rich truths concerning God on all those pages. And so regardless, ladies, of how much you prayerfully chose to read this year, the goal is to meet. We hear this so much. I love it. To meet with the god of the word and to marvel at his character when our bibles are open worship needs to be alive and it needs to be well so there it is that's the main thrust of wellspring is that we would take the word of god and we would shepherd our hearts with it why so that we can be better worshipers of God, right? So, you know what, instead of me asking you, um, how's your Bible reading going? I could have said, how's your worship of God with your Bible open going? Think about that. (laughs) So you can't do anything well without purposeful, diligent effort right same goes for your bible reading too you need to first of all be consistent in the word of god and secondly you have to be purposeful and that purposeful is so important why so that you can be a better god worshiper and a better heart shepherder because you don't want to Sit down with your Bible open and read through every section for that day and maybe even get excited um, about what you read and maybe even learn something new and then close your Bible and then put it down and then go on with your day. I have been there. I have done that. So that's being consistent, right? But I forgot that main, that other big part, and that is being purposeful. Being in the Word of God purposefully makes a huge difference as to what kind of God worshiper I am and what kind of heart shepherder I am. So it helps to know yourself. And I, I know myself, I am a morning person. I don't do well in the afternoon if I wait. And I also thrive on routine, as many of us do. So for me, that means every night I think of the morning and where I need to be and what I need to do. And I set my alarm clock based on giving myself that time in the morning that I need for purposeful time in the Word. Now, the next part, I call that the preheating the oven part. Ladies will get that. Um, Because this is not a microwavable time. Um, Just like you wouldn't stick a pizza you're baking in a cold oven and expect it to come out hot, bubbly, and delicious. You have to preheat that oven, right? So the same works in my life. So the first thing I do right when I wake up is I put on some worship music because I don't want lego movie song to get stuck in my head sorry (laughs) um i don't want that to get stuck in my head all day long i want scripture to put to music being stuck in my head so that's the first thing i do to help preheat and then what i do next is i um pray and then i might well i do read um either the words to a scripture or the words to a song maybe the words to a song we're going to sing in church the next sunday or one we just have been singing or i might read a a devotional Um, i I always do that to kind of help my heart get ready and then i read and as i'm reading here because i'm in four different places um, here's the next part that's important, is I don't let myself leave the chair. Keep my bottom glued to that chair until I ask myself a couple questions. I say, self, you know, what is it about that I read today that's gonna, that's true, that I can carry with me throughout the day? It could be something true about God and his character. It could be something true about man and his condition it could be something true about what God declares about his word and I pray about that and ladies because I am such a forgetter I actually give myself little pop quizzes throughout the day you know I say oh okay wait a minute it's 12 o'clock what was that that I was going to remember oh yeah and then I can pray about it again And I do that again in the afternoon. And I do that again as my head hits the pillow and I just say, what was that that I that I was going to remember today? That doing that, you see, that's the difference between being consistent and being consistent and worshipful, purposeful. So I hope that that helps you too. And then just to be better equipped and encouraged, you know, we've got to put ourselves um, in with the body. We've got to put ourselves with other ladies, other people that are going to help us remember these truths. And that's why we go to church on Sunday and get have purposeful conversations before and after. And that's a big reason why we're in small group rubbing shoulders with each other, right? And that's why you're here in Wellspring. So let's remind ourselves why we're here in Wellspring. And if you could please turn your binders open or over. We're going to take a look at what's on the back. And that is the purpose of Wellspring. Now we're going to go through the purpose extra slowly today. We're just going to go through it with a fine tooth comb. Look at one strand at a time and just make sure we get all the tangles out because from now on in the morning um, before the lesson we're just going to hit that purpose and we're going to go through the disciplines but today we want to just look 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 at the purpose so let's read it together to equip and encourage the women of grace bible church to shepherd their hearts toward jesus christ with the word of god so that they live gospel transformed lives thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Wow, that sentence is jam-packed. And if you were here last time or you listened online, a lot of these things that are in here will resonate with you because Smed went through it. But let's comb through it one strand at a time. Let's look at the first thing. Shepherd their hearts. Last time we talked about that. So let me ask you, what is your heart? What is your heart? The the core essence of who you are. Say it louder, Cameron. Just the core essence of who you are. The core essence of who you are, good answer. It's your inner man, right? Your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings. You know that. We, we talked about that last time, that follow your heart, that songs. I, I go to buy a, a card, a greeting card, and I have to go, oh, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. They're all so sappy and sentimental. No, you don't wanna follow your heart. You don't wanna let your heart be your guide. My heart is prone to wander. Uh, a wandering guide? I don't want a a guide that wanders. That that guide is is fired, right? That's a mess. I want to get in front of my heart, and I need to lead it. I need to be a shepherd and say, come here, you. Get it? E-W-E.
1: Come here, you, you know,
0: with my shepherding tools, and I need to get in front of my heart, and I need to lead it. But we we always say shepherd your heart, but that's shorthand. Okay, there's more. And this is the important part. We don't often say this part, but we mean it. Okay, you've got to shepherd your heart, but what, where? Look at the next part. Shepherd their heart, Where? towards something yeah say it louder jesus that's usually the answer in sunday school right jesus hey it's true though we want to shepherd our hearts toward jesus christ that's where we're going and we all have shepherding tools right our rod whack and our staff come here right okay we want to shepherd with something look down what are we shepherding with yeah we're shepherding with the word of god and that's why in your homework that whole page was all about why just to remind ourselves why is the word of god key so you spent some time doing that let's uh look in your bibles at hebrews 4 verse 12 one of the places we were we probably all are very very familiar with this Hebrews 4 verse 12 for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword it's piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow able to judge the the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wow. The word of God is revealing, isn't it? No one, nothing is hidden from God's word because it pierces deep enough to show the truth of our thoughts, our motives, ourselves. And ladies, When we know the gospel, I mean, really know the gospel and are able to articulate it well to ourselves and to others, and then apply it to everything in our lives, wow, we will live the next part of our purpose. Look at it, so that they will live gospel transformed lives. Awesome! And, and what's the result? Yeah. We're going to rub shoulders with each other. The body building the body. Wow. And we're going to serve each other. We're going to encourage each other. And it's last two words gospel purpose remember Sned talked about that art gospel purpose it's like this and like this and like that what's this drawing in and then that's what we're doing here and then sending out and it's a cycle and it goes so you can see now how the three disciplines are embedded in that gospel purpose and in our wellspring purpose and we're just going to quickly just read them i'll read them and then Smed is going to come up and talk to us so um, we're going to spend more time on breaking down the three disciplines all through the year so looking forward to that part so discipline one the heart the faithful woman of god shepherds her heart worshipfully toward god through the word of god and in particular the gospel Then the home, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And finally, ministry with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel and our wellspring verse. If you haven't memorized it, you will have by the end. Look at it at the top there. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. What, ladies, do we need to know about the condition of, of our heart, our inner man? Hmm. Before we can guard it, well, stay tuned. We now have Smedley, and he's going to come up and he's going to explain all of that to you, the implications of the gospel on your heart. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Lori. You made uh, big promises that I now have to keep. It's intimidating. I don't know if you've ever heard a joke told with the punchline first. Uh, I've got the punchline for you up here on the board. Zilla. You're laughing already. You haven't even heard the setup line. The setup line is, what did the atheists call their monster movie?
0: All
1: right, that's a really bad start. What I want to do this morning is give you the punchline for the lesson up front. Okay, we're going to build towards something, and it's going to take us a while to get there. But I want to give you the punchline up front, and it is simply this. If you are a Christian here this morning, you can shepherd your heart. We talk a lot about heart shepherding in the church and in Wellspring as a fundamental discipline of the Christian life. And Christian, you can. You have capacities from the Lord available to you internally that make it possible for you to be a shepherd over your own heart, to tell your heart what to do, to tell your brain what to think, to tell your feelings, how to feel, etc. You can do that. You have supernatural capacities from the Lord to do that. And you're not what you used to be. But Christian, you're also, you also need to know that you must shepherd your heart. Because you are not yet what you will be. And you have brought with you into the Christian life residual depravity. You're not yet like Christ. Your heart is still vulnerable to temptation. Your heart is still prone to wandering, as Lori just said. We still sin. So, Christian, you must shepherd your heart. That's the point of this morning. I want you to know why, as a Christian, you can shepherd your heart when you couldn't before you knew Christ. And I want you to know why you must shepherd your heart. Because you're not yet totally like Christ. That's where we're going this morning. And to do that, you've got a tool. It's that blue chart. You've got a three-panel blue chart in your notebook. Pull those out. And, and there's no way we can read everything on the blue chart this morning. In fact, I'll avoid most of it. But I want to give you a framework for how to use this chart, how to look at it, benefit from it. It really is a roadmap. It's one of those things when you go to the mall and you, you, you look around and you're going, well, I don't, when I go to the mall, I I walk in, I think, what have I just gotten myself into? Where am I? I need that little thing that says, you are here, X marks the spot. This chart is going to help us think, where am I? Where am I in the timeline of what God is doing with humanity? Okay, and, and we're gonna start in Genesis chapter one. So turn in your Bibles there, and we're gonna start in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is not on the blue chart. The blue chart is a three-panel chart. What I have for you on the whiteboard is four panels. Um, So we're going to start where the the blue chart does not start. And we're going to start in the first two chapters of our Bible, the first two chapters of human history, uh, which is a time period when man and woman, created in the image of God, lived without sin. Okay, so I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And look down at verse 28, or sorry, 26. And God says this. Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I look down at verse 15 of chapter 2. This goes back in time a little bit. It it, it zooms into some of the details of God creating man. In in chapter 2, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden, eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then Yahweh said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a suitable helper for him. And then God brings all the animals in front of Adam. You remember the scene? You're, you're hanging on the edge of your seat. Who's the suitable helper? Ardvark. No. Antelope. And you go through the whole parade of animals and and adam is given the task of naming all the animals and, and then you have woman and god creates woman um, and then you, in verse 23 you have the first love song um, and then adam and eve are there together uh, two chapters of the bible sinless By the way, the the first panel represents the first two chapters of your Bible. The last panel represents the last two chapters of your Bible. Everything else is a mess that we've gotten ourselves into that God is rescuing us from. Right. So let's start in the first panel. And I just want to think about what is man? What is man at the very beginning? And it's helpful for us to see what God created man to be in his image so that we understand the awful reality of the fall of man, right? Where did we fall from? That is critical for us to understand. Um, so I just want to give you some categories to think about man's capabilities, man's abilities, and what he was made for. In a the, in the pre-fall state, uh, we would say that man... was able to sin. How do we know that uh, Adam and Eve were able to sin? Because they did. Okay, Um, they were sinless, but they were able to sin. And just as a starting point, thinking through Adam and Eve, we need to set the, the framework for humanity, and that sinfulness is not intrinsic to humanity. You've heard it say, to err is human. That is incorrect. That is bad theology. Unless you're talking about this panel right here. Mm -hmm. Unregenerate man. But why would I say that sin is not intrinsic to humanity? Because Adam and Eve, perfectly human, didn't sin for a little while. Can you think of another human being, perfectly human, who never sinned? The Lord Jesus Christ. And did you know, Christian, that for most of your existence, you will be unable to sin? For For nearly the entirety of your life, you will not sin. You will not have the capacity to sin. Why do I say that? Because that last panel has a sideways eight. You know, the, the symbol for infinity. And if you do the math and you subtract 60, 70, 80, 90 years from infinity... What do you get? Something near zero. I mean, in comparison, your life on this earth is infinitesimally small compared to the totality of your existence when you will not sin. So it's not intrinsic to humanity to sin. However, when we get to the fall, we'll understand where we've only ever been so far is sinners by nature. It's all we know. But if we start here, we understand what man was created to be sinless. Uh, but able to sin in the garden. Um, Man's relationship to God, we would say, is immediate fellowship. Immediate fellowship. We learn from Genesis 3-8 that God walked in the cool of the day in the garden with man. That is, God and man in fellowship together with nothing in between. No mediator, no wall, no barrier, no separation. What a remarkable privilege. And when you think about what God created man with, just simple capacities and abilities. God gave man the ability of speech. To communicate. God is a communicating God. The second person of the Trinity is called the Word. God invented language, and he created language makers and language receptors. Language is not something that developed over evolutionary time. We went from caveman grunts... To complicated philosophical argumentation. No, on day one, Adam is having a conversation with his maker. And and if you've had children, you, you know what kind of conversations happened on day one. Day one for Adam, mature, thoughtful conversation. And and his speech, sinless. Can you imagine having one sinless conversation? without taint of bad motives, without the possibility of misunderstandings. What an amazing gift speech is. Uh, God gave man the ability to create, not in the Hebrew word bara, only God creates out of nothing. But man takes what God has made and refashions it and forms new things. Music, art, metallurgy. The, The fact that in Genesis 4, you already have people inventing musical instruments and playing them, and digging stuff out of the ground, refining metals. We don't, we don't have caveman to Stone Age to Bronze Age. We've got advanced metallurgy on, on the fourth page of your Bible, the beginning of human history. God created man with remarkable capacities. God created man with self-awareness and understanding. We can think outside of ourselves, right? Broccoli doesn't think outside of itself. Granite doesn't think outside of itself. And dolphins don't think very much farther than where's the next sardine? But humans can step out, have a world view. We think about destiny and history. We, we look back at things that happened in the past and analyze them and we look forward to the future in hope and anticipation and fear. We have a capacity to, to think beyond ourselves. Man is given a capacity for intellect, for rational thinking, for logical deductions, for reasoning things out. Of course, we've been given this palette of emotions. Ways to feel about things, to be in awe, to love, a grand palette of emotional capacity, all of which is designed to bring glory to God, because God, in his infinite dimensions and multifaceted character and to, some totality of his attributes we talked about his glory last time that, that, that we as creatures can appreciate those things and respond accordingly. That's what your emotions are for. God gave us a sense of morality. The ability to know that there are things like right and wrong. And eventually those would play out. God gave us the capacity for scientific investigation. God gave humanity immortality. Immortality. Eternal existence. And God gave man responsibility and lordship. We saw that in Genesis 1. God made them in their image. God said, rule over. Put the kibosh, is the Hebrew, on the created order. Man and, and woman in the Garden of Eden were designed to be God's subregents over the universe, to rule. And, and, and rulership, since the fall, we, we, we think of tyranny and, and bad rulership and evil lordship and domination with sinful motives. But in the Garden, that rulership was clean and good and perfect and beautiful. What would it look like for the created order to submit to God's subregent humanity, on the earth? Man was designed by God to be lords of the earth. And notice the command before the fall was to multiply and fill the earth with image bearers who would rule the earth in good governorship. What would it have been like without sin to have musical instruments, art, metallurgy, building, architecture, and all the things that man had the capacity to do with scientific inquiry, but no sin? That ought to... That ought to make us think forward a little bit in anticipation. We see what man has been able to do after the fall. And yet, these capacities were so great. We have a capacity for adoration, to think bigger than ourselves, to be in awe of big things, designed for the worship of God. And and finally, and best of all, man was created with the capacity for relationship to his maker. What a staggering thing. For, For God to walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve in the garden. What was man's relationship to sin? Man was able to sin in the garden. What was man's relationship to God? Unmediated fellowship. What was man's relationship to the created order? Lord. Good rulership. And what was the relationship of the creation to man? Not frustrated, but willing, yielding fruit, yielding produce, able to be cultivated and not fighting back? What was man's relationship to work? There was work in the garden. There was work before the fall. Uh, Work being hard is not a fruit of the curse. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, Mayonnaise is part of the curse. (laughs) Bees are part of the curse, but work is not part of the curse. Prior to the fall, work was only fun all the time. I take a shovel into my backyard, and I dig a hole. Why? Because I'm working. My son takes a shovel into the backyard and digs a hole. Why? Because he's playing. What's the difference? Not the activity. The curse is involved in that. And then, what is man's relationship to man in the Garden of Eden? Perfect, sinless. I mean, take it all the way down just to the level of conversation. What would it be like to have a sinless, flawless, perfectly understood conversation with your spouse? Just one. That would be incredible. It was incredible. Uh, the panels here are stages in the history of man. The spaces in between are events that transition between those stages. Okay This event right here to follow. It takes us from panel one to panel two, or it puts you into the first panel on the blue chart. The blue chart someday is going to have four panels. I promise I said that last year, haven't gotten to it. need to get there. Um, But the fall of man takes us into stage two of human existence. And and seeing the greatness of man, by the way, you can read Psalm 8 later. It is the commentary on the greatness of man reflecting back on the Garden of Eden. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? And look at man, look how great man is. Um, That's not a reflection on how cool are we since the fall. (laughs) That's David's reflection on man in the Garden of Eden what God designed man to be. And it sets us up to understand the tragedy of squandered capacity. Right. So when we come to the fall of man, you know the story in Genesis 3, the, the snake comes, that is the incarnation of Satan who is called the serpent of old. He, he comes to, to man and woman. He is already an enemy of God and now he wants to be the enemy of the image bearers of God. And look at Genesis chapter 3. Satan takes Adam and Eve down a path, first, of intellectual inquiry. He said to the woman, Indeed, verse 1 Has God said, uh, look, I'm just asking questions. And that is the insidious, sneaky way down the path of lies, destruction, and eternal death. And it sounds so innocent. Uh, did, wait, is, is that what God said? It is evil. And they don't see it coming. And the woman said, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And she doesn't get God's words exactly right, which means maybe she wasn't quite paying attention. Maybe they, they weren't helping each other shepherd their hearts toward what did God say versus what is this talking snake talking about? And all of a sudden, Satan... Brings his insidious, sneaky question asking right down to outright lies and an attack on God's word. The serpent said to the woman, verse 4, you surely shall not die. And he has introduced truth and error into human existence. God said something, but now I'm telling you something else. And I'm saying God's a liar. And she falls for it and we've never been the same since the woman saw that the tree was good for food delight to the eyes desirable to make one wise and and by the way part of satan's lies was there's a reason god doesn't want you to touch that you'll be like him hmm. be like him maybe the snakes onto something we understand the the result of this, the eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They just got religious. That is man's religion in a nutshell. Sin against God. Okay, I know something's wrong. I've got to do something for myself to cover up sin and shame. And that itself is sin and shameful, like all human religion. What a tragedy. This is the fall of man. And and what Adam and Eve did by choice when they were able to sin, they pass on to their progeny, that's us, a nature, a sin nature. So that now we do what they did out of who we are. You, You must understand, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are by nature a sinner. This is who we are from birth. And yes, you can blame your parents for your sin. And they can blame theirs and theirs and theirs. Not for individual acts. You're you're responsible for individual acts. But you got your sin nature from your parents and they from theirs all the way back to Adam and Eve. Let's talk about what sin is in us for a moment. And and we talk about universal depravity. And we mean by universal depravity the fact that everybody is in the same condition. There are no exceptions. Genesis 6-5 says this. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, and it was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And, and I know it's common to sort of say, well, yeah, we make mistakes. We, we give euphemisms for sin. Yeah, nobody's perfect. No, 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 no. Nobody's perfect misses the point altogether. That's like saying, yeah, the Nazis, they're, they're kind of bad. Nobody's perfect. Listen to God's indictment of us in Genesis 6-5. He's evil. And the thoughts and the intentions of his heart are only evil continually. Yeah, but I had good intentions. God says, no, you didn't. There are no such things as good intentions from fallen man. God's indictment of the human condition is awful. And think about where Genesis 6-5 happens. There's a major judgment event that happens as a result of God's indictment in Genesis 6-5. What is that event? It covers three chapters in Genesis. The flood. The flood. And living in Arizona is a great place to see the effects of it. Go outside and look. And God wiped off everybody off the face of the earth except for eight people. What is his assessment of those eight people after they step off of the boat? Um, Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. The flood didn't fix the heart problem for Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and we all come from them. We all inherit this depravity. And so you kind of come to Psalm 14, one, um, There is no one who does good. They've all turned aside, together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. David acknowledged in Psalm 51, 5, when he's reflecting on his own personal outward sins, he said, in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying my mom was sinning when I was conceived. He's saying, from conception, I am a sinner. This is the reality. This is the reality that man tries to deny. Every religion tries to deny this. Every uh, self-esteem guru denies this in our day. And yet this is the truth. This is God's assessment of humanity. Nobody else's assessment matters. The truth of the Bible through and through is that everyone is a sinner. And it's not enough to say that everyone's a sinner. We must also speak about total depravity. Total depravity means that every aspect of the human constitution is affected by sin. All those capacities we just talked about, the capacity to to think, to ration, the capacity for science, our awareness of history and destiny, our creativity, our speech, our thoughts, emotions, our wills, our affections, all of it are affected by sin In, in this panel right here. Universal depravity means it's true of everybody. Total depravity means it's true of every part of you affected by sin. Those of you who are old enough to have lived in the 1900s may have remembered a television commercial with a frying pan and an egg. You remember that one? Um, This is drugs, the frying pan, sizzling frying pan. This is your brain, the egg. Crack, crack, sizzle. This is your brain on drugs. Well, we need to be aware of our brain on depravity. What is our brain on sin? It's fried. We don't think right. Man's intellectual capacity is ruined. Right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal mans and birds and animals and reptiles. They worshipped and served the created thing rather than the creator who's forever praised. Um, we do not think straight. Theologians call that the noetic effects of sin. That means when man tries to ration his way out of his problems his rationing is a problem He can't get himself out of it when man tries to Moralize his way out of his problems his morals are affected by sin too And he can't get his way out of it when man tries to feel his way out of his problems His feelings are corrupt And he can't get his way out of it then when man tries to talk his way out of his problems. What's up with the speech? the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison it is a small spark that sets a great forest on fire no one can tame it there's not a single capacity in the human constitution that is not affected by sin in world war ii lori told me you needed an illustration this morning that involved war and tanks and submarines and stuff airplanes so here goes Uh, in, in world war ii the, the Germans obviously had taken over Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland had fallen, the uh, Sudetenland had gone away, all the lower countries were in peril, Belgium, Luxembourg, all the rest. And Britain was alone. You think, well, where, where, where were England's allies? Churchill was calling for help, and he couldn't get any help. In fact, we think of Russia as an ally in World War II. Russia was not our ally in World War II. They were allied with Hitler against Britain for most of the war. Now, eventually, uh, Stalin and Hitler fought each other because they were both evil. Stalin killed more people than Hitler did in World War II. Stalin killed his own people, starved his own people in order to fight a war. Uh, Stalin would send his own troops into battle without guns so they could collect the guns from the dead bodies in front of them and just be a mass of bodies to take extra bullets from the Germans. I mean, he was a wicked, wicked guy, and he was plotting against Britain and eventually against America with Hitler. So Britain was truly alone. And and I don't know if you've seen England on a map. It's like a rock off the coast of Europe in the North Atlantic. It's tiny, it doesn't have resources. They have a navy. They have historically had a navy since the 1600s because they have to go everywhere else to get stuff. That's why it could have been said, and it, it just ended a couple of years ago, could have been said the sun never sets on the British Empire. Because um, I wouldn't wanna live in England forever either. <laughs> But it meant that they were stranded and they needed supplies. The U.S. Lend-Lease program was getting supplies to England. We were sending them by ship, uh, tanks, boats, I mean, uh, tanks and, and, and trucks and guns and ammunition, except all of that material was being destroyed. We had to send over four ships worth of stuff to get one across the Atlantic, why? German submarines. They were sinking all the Allied shipping. By the way, we were sending stuff over in secret because the Americans didn't want to be involved in another world war. We didn't want to send our boys over there. Trench warfare in World War I was terrible. We're not doing that again, so just just secretly send them stuff. We'll hope it ends. Well, it wasn't ending. How are we going to solve the problem of getting needed material to the Brits? Um, One man figured out a solution. Why are we sending it over in boats? Let's fly it over there. And and that might make sense in our day, right? We have the C-5 Galaxy and the C-17. You just cram a bunch of tanks and people in there. We just saw them hauling all kinds of things out of Afghanistan. That's easy. Fly it over there. Well, think about 1943. Only 10 years earlier, only 10 years earlier, the first man, Charles Lindbergh, flew across the Atlantic by himself. It took him 33 hours and 30 minutes to do it, and he almost died. Just 10 years earlier was the first flight across the Atlantic. And in that 10 years, we went from Charles Lindbergh to the, to the uh, ocean-going seaplanes that would carry passengers, but not all the way. And then finally, just before World War II, there were the first transport uh, commercial flights between America and Europe. And some guy says, yeah, we'll just fly tanks over there. It was impossible. It was absolutely impossible. Uh, and, and the man who said, we can do this, is the guy who invented the flush rivet. Okay, I'm getting really airplane nerdy here. Every time I get on an airplane, I touch the outside side of the skin, which is smooth. It's smooth because the little metal things, little metal buttons that hold it together, he invented the countersunk holes and the flat ones that make the whole thing smooth. And when he invented the flush rivet, he increased the airspeed uh, record by 100 miles an hour. And he said, well, we'll just build an airplane. And he did. He built an airplane that could fly trucks and tanks over the submarines and get the needed stuff to Europe. And in a battle with government contracts, the government decided not to mass produce it. He flew it one time. It was called the HK1 Hercules, and it did everything he promised it could do, except it never flew a single tank or truck or gun or bullet to Europe. It is the tragedy of squandered capacity. All the expertise that went into it from a genius. By the way, he's one of those guys that um, harkens back to Genesis 1. If you think about autistic savants or some of these geniuses that stand out in a crowd and you just think, wow, the human brain can do that? Yeah, it used to. What would it have been like for Adam to name a bunch of animals and come up with syllables to represent actual creatures? I mean, I go aardvark, antelope, can't think of anything else. He came up with the whole list in an afternoon, and then a love song, and then all the stuff. I mean, um, geneticists think that junk DNA is, oh, a bunch of this scrap material that evolution miraculously is going to put together and make us better and better and better. It's the opposite. Junk DNA exists because we used to be great, and we're devolving. And the junk DNA and the reason that we have genetic markers for diseases we can identify is because there are uh, chromosomes that don't work anymore. They used to work. The, the The human genome is falling apart and will not last long. But every once in a while, you get these vestiges of genius that point us back to the garden. It's like, whoa, what could man have done? This guy was one of those guys. And he invented the airplane that was going to solve the U-boat crisis in World War II. And it never lived up, it capability was, but it never accomplished what it was designed for. And the man who designed it, you probably know his name. The HK1, by the way, was otherwise known as the Spruce Goose. Anybody seen it? It was in Long Beach for a while. Um, Howard Hughes is the man who designed, built it, and flew it. And uh, I learned on uh, Wednesday Wellspring that April Price's great-uncle was on the plane when it flew, was the radio operator. She sent me pictures of it after Wellspring. I was like, oh, why didn't you tell me that before? <laughs> um, and and the man himself was every bit the tragedy that his airplane was because he lived as a, as a hermit and a germaphobe and a, a, a billionaire and lived in fear the rest of his life in a dark room, basically in a closet in his mansion. What a tragedy of squandered capacity. That's what this is. We are a living tragedy of squandered capacity. Everything that man was designed to be, he fails at. Everything that man was designed to be, he fails at. Listen, Matthew 15, out of the heart, that is the central control center of the human being, come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. They defile the man. Listen to Jeremiah 17. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 8. The ones who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh... They are hostile towards God. They do not subject themselves to the law of God. They're not even able to do so. Think about our affections, our emotions. John 3, 19 to 21. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Look, we don't think right. We don't do right. We don't love right. We don't feel right. We don't will right. Jesus said you're unwilling to come to me. John 5:40. What a tragedy. Think about the effects of depravity on our capacities. The tongue is a small part of the of the body, and yet it is a fire, a world of iniquity, an evil and a poison. Think about man's ability to create To reflect God's glory and God's genius through creativity, it's been corrupted by sin. Music, art, engineering, literature, they've all become implements of godlessness in the hands of sinful men. Think about our self-awareness, our ability to think beyond ourselves. Proverbs 19.3 says, The foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. We're just not living up to what we were designed to be. The last thing that natural man wants to do now is joyfully submit to the sovereign rulership of God. He wants to be his own God, to rage against the Lord. He wants to claim some sort of existential autonomy and live for himself. Think about our sense of history and destiny to reflect on the past and contemplate the future. We've turned that into some sort of Darwinian self-preservation. The the strongest survive or the thought that we get better and better we become slaves to temporal gluttony, living for ourselves. Titus 3.3 3 says, We are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Think about the intellect. One of the effects of inherited sin nature is the corruption of our intelligence. Our sinful mind is hostile to God, Romans 8.7. Our reasoning and rational ability. Jeremiah 4.22 says, My people are foolish. They don't know me. They're stupid children and they have no understanding. They're shrewd to do evil, but to do good they know not. All of this, all of our capacities, are shot to pieces. What is it like... To be under sin. Here in this panel, we would say our relationship to sin is unable to not sin. Bad tree bears fruit, bears bad fruit, can't <clears throat> bear good fruit. There is a moral inability to please God. Now, total depravity and universal depravity do not mean we're as bad as we could be. <laughs> you can do worse than you are. But the reality is that everybody sins and every part of us is affected by sin so that apart from the supernatural work of God and regeneration, you can do nothing that pleases God, which is God's definition of righteousness. Right? When, the, when the guy helps a little old lady across the street, that's better than other things he could have done. But it does not meet the standard of goodness by faith that pleases God. When we're in this panel, we have to recognize the only thing that pleases God is that which God will produce. And left to ourselves, we will never get there. We can never do things that are pleasing to God. What is our relationship to God in this panel? Alienated? Enmity? Hostility? Lack of submission to his lordship? We just don't want Him. We love darkness rather than light. We love evil rather than good. We love ourselves rather than God. What is man's relationship to the creation? Well, after the fall, the creation itself gets cursed. Romans 8 says the whole created order is frustrated. It's literally craning the neck around the corner, waiting to see what it'll look like when man's finally redeemed. Uh, Turn to Genesis 3. Let's look at the effects of the fall on man and creation. This is so fascinating. Beginning in verse 14, God begins a series of cursings and blessings in three parallel strains. The first curse is on the snake, and he's talking to Satan. He curses the snake physically. But then in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head. You will bruise him on the heel. Satan will be crushed in a mortal blow at the head, and the seed of the woman will be crushed at the Achilles heel, uh, a non-mortal wound. Um, What does that mean? Uh, This is blessing, not for Satan, but for humanity. This is the seed promise. That God, from the very beginning of the fall, promised to redeem humanity through a seed of the woman. What an amazing blessing! The, the curse on the snake, and then the blessing to humanity. Go to verse fifteen. Uh, go to verse sixteen. To the woman, He said, "I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth; in pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you." Here again, you have a parallel stanza of cursing and blessing. What is the curse on the woman and her realm? God said, you will bear seed, and that seed will crush the snake. Oh, great, seed-bearing, that sounds good. We know trees, they bear fruit, seeds, got it. By the way, there's only four people. (laughs) Talking snake, God, Adam, and Eve. Nobody's ever had children yet. That's a new category. But seed, okay, great. It's interesting when you get to Genesis 4.1 that Eve's response when she says, Behold, I have begotten a man-child, Yahweh. Wait, you just called your baby Yahweh? Why did you do that? I think she's anticipating something about God's promise. The only other person here, is he going to be the seed? Because uh, it's not going to be me, it's not going to be Adam, and it's certainly not going to be the snake. Is God going to do something here? That's a really interesting text uh, in terms of her anticipation of what's coming. But now there's going to be pain in the childbearing. Uh, the, the woman's realm is cursed in this way. And some have taken the second half of the verse as also curse, Um, that that you're going to uh, desire your husband. In other words, you're going to desire to overtake his realm and he's going to dominate and rule over you. This is the beginning of marital conflict right here. That's the curse. I don't think that's what's going on in this verse at all. I think that's a read of 21st century feminism into Genesis. I don't think that's appropriate, 20th century feminism. Um, I think what's going on here is blessing. The second half of this is blessing. Um, The word for desire here in verse... 16 shows up three times in your Bible once here once in Genesis four and once in Song of Solomon 7:10 and it simply means really strong desire here God is saying you will have a really strong desire for your husband it doesn't say you will have a really strong desire to take over his role to to, to you know uh, I am woman hear me roar that's not what it's saying just you'll have a really strong desire for your husband in Genesis 4. Uh, God says to Cain, sin has a really strong desire for you. And there, what is the really strong desire? Dominate, destroy, and kill. But you don't import the conversation with Cain back into the conversation with Eve. The word just means strong desire. right? You, there's a word study fallacy or a Bible study fallacy where you total, bring the total context of one context and make it the context of the other. No, nope, it's just a word. The better parallel is Song of Solomon 7.10, where the bride says she has a really strong desire for her husband, for marital love, and it's good. This is a blessing here in Genesis 3. The curse is pain and childbirth. The blessing is, I mean, listen, uh, Adam just failed in protecting you, upholding God's word in your marriage, and making sure we listen to God, not the snake. He, He didn't protect, he didn't love you in the ways that he should and now God says through a seed you're gonna, is the solution to the, to the snake, uh, the woman could very easily have said, no thank you on that, solu- on that solution, and dude, don't touch me. The earth's not big enough for both of us. You go that way, I'm going that way. And what is God's promise? I promised a seed, and I promise you, you will love your husband. And he will rule over you. Um, he'll, he'll do what he was supposed to do. Um, Not abandon you like he abandoned you a few minutes ago in the garden, um, but care for you. Uh, Live up to what he was supposed to do. This is blessing from the Lord. Even though they had every incentive to go their separate ways, it's interesting what Adam calls his wife when he names her after the fall. He doesn't name her Thorny. um, He doesn't name her Cursed, or who knows what else he could have thought of. He names her Eve the mother of all life God Adam is banking on God's promise for the seed promise and for the filling of the earth and then another blessing cursing and then blessing verse 17 to Adam he said, "cause you've listened to the voice of your wife you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you cursed is the ground in toil you will eat of it by the sweat of your face you will eke bread out the ground that's the Hebrew text cursing and blessing um the the ground is now going to grow weeds and thorns um the dog will bite and the bee will sting and copper kettles and warm woolen and mittens won't fix it uh the life's going to be hard but you're not going to die right away <laughs> you're now mortal in a new sense but you will eat do you see that in verse 17 By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread out of the ground. In other words, God's going to keep his promise about a redemption for humanity by keeping you alive. And it's going to be frustrated. Work's going to stink. What is man's relationship to work in this panel? Work stinks. Work is cursed. Both the the woman's realm and the man's realm, both are cursed. It's going to be hard, painful, toilsome and we find out the entire created order is subjected to frustration because of the fall of man. Things aren't right. Hurricanes, catastrophes, animal predation, mayonnaise, all of this stuff comes from the fall. I'm telling you. Uh, what is man's relationship to man? Broken, sinful, tainted. Look, we talk about, um, it, it's bad enough that any one of us is sinful through and through And and Solomon says What happens to the ointment When you have one dead fly in it Ruins the whole batch What happens when you have Seven billion dead flies In the ointment of this world When we all get together Collective depravity It's awful um, One way to describe our relationship To sin here is slave of sin We're Just slave of sin inextricable slavery can't get out of this there's nothing you can do to remove yourself you can't buy your way out um, there there is no hope no help this is a wretched condition in fact Romans five twenty calls it being under the dominion of sin and frankly sinners like it right you hear people say heaven hell I'd rather go to hell and have a party with my friends um, We've gotten comfortable here we, we like our sin We hate, we hate the effects of it and we hate everybody else's sin but we like ours. Um, we judge everybody else we're hypocrites and but we don't want anybody to mess with our lives. We certainly don't want some God telling us what to do. It is a blind evil wicked slavery and sin is a bad master. And sin actually wants to kill you wants to destroy you. And yet, that's where I live, that's where I was born, that's what I love. We need rescue. So we need this event. This is not a TV right now. This is an event that takes you from panel 2 to panel 3, or in the blue chart, panel 1 to panel 2. This event is called regeneration. New birth, conversion, new life, faith, repentance. Repentance. And if you're looking at the blue chart, it's kind of a tan column that leads you down to a great big tan panel at the bottom. And that's because a lot of stuff gets jammed into a single point in time that is instantaneous. God turns the lights on, God causes you to be born again, and a whole bunch of stuff happens. This is regeneration. What happens in, the re- in regeneration? Regeneration. We hear the gospel, we believe the gospel, we turn from idols to the one true God, we turn from ourselves to Christ, we turn from sin to righteousness. What happens in this event? Adoption. Adoption. That is, you were in the wrong family, and God kindly brought you into His family. He gave you a name that you didn't deserve. He gave you an inheritance you could never procure. He gives you Himself. We get to call him Daddy. What else happens in this split-second moment of new birth? Um, Justification. That is, you are declared righteous. Everything you ever were in this panel, everything you ever did in this panel is wiped clean, removed as far from you as the East is from the West. It is forgotten. It is put away, expiated, done away with once and forevermore. All sins, past, present, and future, put on Christ at the cross, so He is credited with your sin, and you are credited with His righteousness. What else happens in this instantaneous moment? Reconciliation. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. We possess it. We possess peace with the God with whom we were alienated at enmity with. We were enemies. And now, friends... We are reconciled. We are made at one. There are too many things to list even on this chart. One thing that is super significant here is that the old man, what the Bible calls the paleos anthropos. right? Paleos is old like paleontology. Anthropos is man like anthropology. The, The old man is dead. Now, I have to say, you you might find your you are here. Map might be on this panel. You may be here this morning and still a slave of sin, not have power over the tyranny of sin in your life. You may still be under sin's dominion. You may have not yet experienced new birth. Okay, if you find yourself here, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask God to transform you, okay? Um, But if you were on this panel, If you are here, Marcus, post-conversion, you have been born again. You have entered into life. The Paleos Anthropos is no more. He's gone. She's dead. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The old me is gone. 2 Corinthians 5.17, new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Romans chapter 6, all of us who have been crucified with Christ, we're dead in relationship to sin. Sin, that old slave master who only ever told us what to do, is the only master we knew, doesn't get to be our master anymore. If a slave owner owns slaves and the slave dies, the slave owner can't tell the slave what to do anymore. Our union with Christ is a union with his death. That death has fundamentally changed our relationship to sin. Sin is not the master anymore. You are no longer sin-slave, Christian. This is a new life. This regeneration event produces a regenerate man. A new stage where all oh, things are new. This is, this is really remarkable. You need to know that you don't go back, right? There's no going back into the first panel. Why? Because there's a cherubim with a flaming sword. God said, "Get out. You can't be here anymore." There's no going back from this panel to that panel because once the regeneration event has happened, it's done. God has fundamentally transformed you. There's no flip-flopping. And and the same is true here. Once you cross this threshold, which is either your death. And then waiting for a resurrection body, or rapture, or you know whatever the the uh, wherever you find yourself on the timeline of eschatological events when you get from here to here, you don't go back. Everything moves from left to right in this chart. And what's here is new, Christian. You are not what you used to be. You're not yet what you will be, but you're not what you used to be. And you have new capacities now. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory, God in you. So, um, broken fellowship in panel 2. Now, a sense of immediate fellowship with God again. Uh, There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We have direct access to God through Christ, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Uh, We have fellowship with Him. And yet, the immediate fellowship we have with God is still mediated in some sense. We're not before Him face-to-face. True, immediate fellowship with God will be here. Okay, but for now, direct access to God. It's not everything it will be, but it is so incredible compared to what it used to be. And you have a new heart. And I know that I'm borrowing that language from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is a specific promise to Israel about the new covenant that has not yet been fulfilled. I believe in Gentile participation in the spiritual benefits of Israel's new covenant. Okay, that's a whole other message. And we benefit from regeneration, this new heart reality that God promises Israel. We benefit from that now. Um, We don't benefit from everything the new covenant will bring about. Not yet, not to the millennial kingdom. But here, I'm okay using the language of Israel's new covenant and a new heart to describe the Christian experience, even though the New Testament doesn't do that. We're comfortable doing that I have a new heart To use Ezekiel 36 and 37 My heart of stone's been plucked out And I have a heart of flesh Uh, God's talking about soft heartedness toward him By supernatural miracle This event Change the condition of your heart Uh, This brings to us a a certain dilemma When we think about this new heart And it's the reason the blue chart exists It it really uh, uh, began from the question If I have a new heart And that new heart is a gift from the Lord. Well, man, I can trust my heart now. Do you understand the the logic and the deduction? If if I have a new heart and this new heart came from God, then my heart's trustworthy. Why would God give me something that was untrustworthy? Why would God give me something that was sinful? If he gave me my heart, then it must be good and I can trust myself. Um, That is not the right way to think about the new heart. Your heart is new, not by replacement, and not by subtraction. Your heart is new by addition. Your heart is new by addition. That is, who you were in panel two has come over into panel three, and new things have been added. Now, some categories have been taken away. You're no longer a slave of sin. You're no longer spiritually dead. You're no longer at enmity with God. But you still like the same breakfast cereal. Regeneration didn't change that. You still have your physical characteristics. You still have your same vocal cords. You still have your same memories. You still have the, the, many of the same ways that you think. And you still have what we'll call residual depravity and Jeremiah 17:9 applies here. That's not just paleos anthropos stuff. If you read through the book of Proverbs and you just ask yourself, can I trust myself? Should I trust myself? Should I follow my? Own? Read the book of Proverbs, which is written to believers in Yahweh for wisdom, and just catalog the 9 or 10 verses through Proverbs that say no. If you trust yourself, that's sin. You're not trustworthy. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Right? And the classic one that we memorized as kids and kind of forgot what it means, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. Don't trust your own understanding. Your inner man is deceptive and desperately sick. Uh, Older theologians used to talk about this phase as having two natures. You have two natures. You have your sin nature, which you brought over from your old life, and you have a new nature with heavenly capacities. And now there's a war going on. We would call this a mixed condition. This is a mixed condition. Um, there, nature's is philosophically a, a problematic word, and so we've, we've kind of moved away from saying Uh, We have two natures here. But if you read uh, the Puritans, they'll talk about it that way. Um, We would call this a mixed condition. Uh, First panel, mixed or unmixed? Unmixed, sinless. Second panel, mixed or unmixed? Unmixed, sinful. Third panel, mixed. Sinner and saint simultaneously. Uh, What about fourth panel, mixed or unmixed? Unmixed. Man, that'll be good. Okay? So when we talk about a mixed condition, we have to understand that this is weird. This is the weird phase. Now, if you've been a Christian for decades, that's all you've known for decades. If you've been a Christian for five minutes, this is going to be weird. You just need to know. This is different than that. You, You didn't have a war going on inside of you. Uh, sure, God gave you a conscience, and so you felt that. There are, there are internal struggles for unbelievers over right and wrong. But but they don't get it right, and they don't have the war of the indwelling spirit waging war against sin, leading us to put to death the deeds of the body in our current existence that is fraught with residual depravity. Christian, you can shepherd your heart here, because you have heavenly capacities to. You you can drag your heart and your emotions, your thinking, your reasoning ability under the faucet of the Word of God and be renewed in your mind. You can do that in ways that old man could not do. Unable, unwilling, undesirable. You can do that here. And Christian, you must do that here because what's inside of you is still true. Jesus said, out of the heart flow all the dirty deeds." And again, it's not just the outward acts, it's the inward motives, it's the not loving God with my whole heart, mind, strength, all the time. Not loving my neighbor as much as I love myself. Uh, We are plagued with residual depravity. There is a war on, and Christian, you must fight that war. It's one of the ways that you demonstrate that regeneration has already happened, is your active participation in that war. It's one of the ways you gain assurance in your love for Christ is your active participation in that war. And it also anticipates the frustration that the rest of creation feels. The dolphins, the broccoli and the granite, they're all frustrated because we're not like Christ. We're not like Christ yet. So we feel that in this war with sin as you shepherd your heart. You're corralling your emotions. you're putting to death the deeds of the body. You are telling your heart what to think, what to feel, how to will. And by God's power, by God's grace, through the instrumentality of God's word, and by our interactions with each other, we do these things. I know we're not here yet, but let's talk about this last panel for a minute. What's our, oh, uh, what's our relationship to sin here? Able not to sin. What would be our relationship to sin here? Unable, unable to. This, this is nearly the totality of your life, Christian. This is so short. Panel three is so short. When we look back on panel three, we'll go, "That was weird." Remember that? Not really. This is home. This is forever. This is sinless. Do you remember the Garden of Eden? Do you remember what, what, what we lost? This is better. It's unlosable. It's perfected. All of that potentiality manifested forever and ever and ever. We will once again see the greatness of man greatness of man rightly related to his creator rightly related to the creation living up to all that God designed it will be so good we need to know where we are it helps us know how to live doesn't it? let's pray together Lord thank you for this morning and for these uh, reminders thank you for all that we've looked at we pray that we would never forget who we were apart from You. May we think on what humanity was before the fall. May we rightly view and assess our situation in our lives now. Grant us an anticipation of heaven, a longing to be home, an eagerness to proclaim Christ to those who are still slaves of sin and in darkness. Give us, O oh God, a, a holy, holy, eagerness to fight the war within to put to death sin to kill idols in our hearts to be useful for you in this very short life in ways that echo into eternity in reward and fruit and praise of your glory we ask it in jesus name oh yeah okay soul's asking for the answers to the to the um to the page there um and uh the the specific ones that i left out or that you didn't get down were what is man's relationship to creation. oh on in in the christian life yeah. okay oh i'm so glad you asked and i have four minutes left I closed in prayer and it's not over yet. Thank you, Saul. This was so great. What is man's relationship to God here? Um, Mediated and immediate fellowship. We have union with him, access to him, direct access to him. What's man's relationship to sin? Able not to sin. What's man's relationship to work? Listen, work still sticks. We haven't uncursed the curse. The problem with your job currently is not the job. It's God's fault. God cursed them. He cursed the ground. He cursed the realms of man and woman, all of it. Your next job's not going to fix it. There's no greener grass on the other side. Um, What's man's relationship to, what's the next one? To creation. Yeah, still frustrated. Yep. Uh, I I tried to trim my brushes, uh, uh, my creeping fig on the back wall, and it was full of wasp nests. Still frustrated. Um, If you've got a garden in Arizona, you know. Uh, You work so hard. We get so much sun. It's wonderful. You can grow anything here as long as you water it. And then when your sprinklers fail, the whole garden dies just before you had tomatoes. Um, It's cursed. Was that all of them? Oh, what's man's relationship to man? Still broken? Oh, by the way, um, I'm leaving things out here. Uh, Our relationship to to work, it's still cursed, but it can be worshipped. So you can go to the factory and build widgets and honor God, right? This, this is why the, the instruction to Christians is, um, I don't work for my boss, really. I work for Jesus. It doesn't matter what my boss. I don't work as a man-pleaser. I don't work for eye service. I do my work as unto the Lord. Students go and study for the test not to get a, a GPA, not to make the teacher happy, but to make Jesus happy. Look, work is redeemed partially in the Christian life. Human relationships are redeemed partially in the Christian life. So the mixed condition applies to all of it. Mixed condition relationship to God. We still sin against him. We want to be pleasing to him. Mixed relationship to work. Mixed relationship to the creation. Mixed relationship to each other. Thanks, soul. Appreciate that.